0: Chapter 2. Plans discussed. Pleasures of camping out on fine nights. Ditto wet nights. Compromise decided on. Mart Morinci. First impressions of. Fears lest he is too good for this world. Fears subsequently dismissed as groundless. Meeting adjourns. We pulled out the maps and discussed plans. We arranged to start on the following Saturday from Kingston. Harris and I would go down in the morning and take the boat up to Chertsey and George, who would not be able to get away from the city till the afternoon. George goes to sleep at a bank from ten to four each day except Saturdays, when they wake him up and put him outside at two, would meet us there. Should we camp out or sleep at inns? George and I were for camping out. We said it would be so wild and free, so patriarchal-like. Slowly the golden memory of the dead sun fades from the hearts of the cold, sad clouds. Silent like sorrowing children, the birds have ceased their song— and only the moorhen's plaintive cry and the harsh croak of the corncrake stirs the awed hush around the couch of waters where the dying day breathes out her last. From the dim woods on either bank, night's ghostly army, the gray shadows, creep out with noiseless tread to chase away the lingering rearguard of the light, and pass with noiseless unseen feet above the waving river grass and through the singing, rush- sighing rushes a night upon her somber throne, folds her black wings above the darkening world, and from her phantom palace, lit by the pale stars, reigns in silence. Then we run our little boat into some quiet nook, and the tent is pitched, and the frugal supper cooked and eaten. Then the big pipes are filled and lighted, and the pleasant chat goes round in musical undertone, while in the pauses of our talk, the river, playing round the boat, prattles strange old tales and secrets. Sings low the old child song that it has sung so many thousand years, Will sing so many thousand years to come, Before its voice grows harsh and old, A song that we, who have learnt to love its changing face, Who have so often nestled on its yielding bosom, Think somehow we understand, Though we could not tell you in mere words the story that we listen to. And we sit there, by its margin, While the moon, who loves it too, Stoops down to kiss it with a sister's kiss and throws her silver arms around it clingingly, and we watch it as it flows, ever singing, ever whispering, out to meet its king, the sea, till our voices die away in silence, and the pipes go out, till we, commonplace, everyday young men, enough, feel strangely full of thoughts, half sad, half sweet, and do not care or want to speak, till we laugh and, rising, knock the ashes from our burnt-out pipes and say good-night, and, lulled by the lapping waters, in the rustling trees we fall asleep beneath the great still stars and dream that the world is young again young and sweet as she used to be ere the centuries of fret and care had furrowed her fair face ere her children's sins and follies had made her old her loving had made old her loving heart sweet as she was in those bygone days when a new-made mother she nursed us her children upon her own deep breast Ere the wiles of painted civilization had lured us away from her fond arms, "'and the poisoned sneers of artificiality had made us ashamed of the simple life we led with her, "'and the simple, stately home where mankind was born so many thousands of years ago.' "'Harris said, "'How about when it rained?' "'You can never rouse Harris. There is no poetry about Harris, "'no wild yearning for the unattainable. "'Harris never weeps, he knows not why.' If Harris's eyes fill with tears, you can bet it is because Harris has been eating raw onions, or has put too much Worchester over his chop. If you were to stand at night by the seashore with Harris and say, Hark, do you not hear? Is it but the mermaid singing deep below the waving waters, or sad spirits chanting dirges for white corpses held by seaweed? Harris would take you by the arm and say, I know what it is, old man, you got a chill. Now you come along with me. I know a place round the corner here where you can get a drop of the finest Scotch whiskey you ever tasted. Put your ride in less than no time." Harris always does know a place round the corner where you can get something brilliant in the drinking line. I believe that if you met Harris up in Paradise, supposing such a thing likely, he would immediately greet you with, "So glad you've come, old fellow, I found a nice place round the corner here where you can get some really first class nectar. In the present instance, however, as regarded the camping out, his practical view of the matter came as a very timely hint. Camping out in rainy weather is not pleasant. It is evening. You are wet through, and there is a good two inches of water in the boat, and all the things are damp. You find a place on the banks that is not quite so puddly as the other places you have seen, and you land and lug out the tent, and the two of you proceed to fix it. It is soaked and heavy, and it flops about— "'and tumbles down on you and clings round your head and makes you mad. "'The rain is pouring steadily down all the time. "'It is difficult enough to fix a tent in dry weather, "'and wet the task becomes Herculean. "'Instead of helping you, "'it seems to you that the other man is simply playing the fool. "'Just as you get your side beautifully fixed, "'he gives it a hoist from his end and spoils it all.
1: "'Here,
0: what are you up to?' you call out. "'What are you up to?' he retorts. "'Let go, can't you?' "'Don't pull it up. You've got it all wrong, you stupid ass!' you shout. "'No, I haven't,' he yells back. "'Let go your side!' "'I tell you, you've got it all wrong,' you roar, wishing that you could get at him. "'And you give your ropes a lug that pulls all his pegs out. "'Ah, oh, the belly idiot,' you hear him mutter to himself. "'And then comes a savage haul, and away goes your side. "'You lay down the mallet, and start to go round and tell him what you think about the whole business. "'And at the same time, he starts, round in the same direction, to come and explain his views to you. "'And you follow each other round and round, swearing at one another, until the tent tumbles down in a heap.' and leaves you looking at each other across its ruins, then you both indignantly exclaim in the same breath, "'There you are! What did I tell you?' Meanwhile, the third man, who has been bailing out the boat, and who has spilled the water down his sleeve, and has been cursing away to himself steadily for the last ten minutes, wants to know what the thundering blazes you're playing at, and why the blarmed tent isn't up yet. At last, somehow or other, it does get up, and you land the things.' It is hopeless attempting to make a wood fire, so you light the methylated spirit stove and crowd round that. Rainwater is the chief article of diet at supper. The bread is two-thirds rainwater, the beefsteak pie is exceedingly rich in it, and the jam and the butter and the salt and the coffee all have combined with it to make soup. After supper you find your tobacco is damp and you cannot smoke. Luckily, you have a bottle of the stuff that cheers and inebriates if taken in proper quantity, and this restores you to sufficient interest in life to induce you to go to bed. There you dream that an elephant has suddenly sat down on your chest, and that the volcano has exploded and thrown you down to the bottom of the sea, the elephant still sleeping peacefully on your bosom. You wake up and grasp the idea that something terrible really has happened. Your first impression is that the end of the world has come, and then you think that this cannot be— and that it is thieves and murderers, or else fire, and this opinion you express in the usual method. No help comes, however, and all you know is that thousands of people are kicking you and you are being smothered. Somebody else seems in trouble, too. You can hear his faint cries coming from under your bed. Determining, at all events, to sell your life dearly, you struggle frantically, hitting out right and left with your arms and legs and yelling lustily the while, and at last something gives way, and you find your head in the fresh air, Two feet off, you dimly observe a half dressed ruffian waiting to kill you, and you are preparing for a life-and-death struggle with him when it begins to dawn on you that it's Jim. Ho! Oh, it's you, is it?' he says, recognizing you at the same moment. "'Yes,' you answer, rubbing your eyes. "'What happened?' Bally tent's blown down, I think,' he said. "'Where's Bill?' Then you both raise up your voices and shout for Bill. "'Bill!' And the ground beneath you heaves and rocks, and the muffled voice that you heard from before replies out of the ruin get off my head can't you and bill struggles out a muddy trampled wreck and in an unnecessarily aggressive mood he being under the evident belief that the whole thing has been done on purpose in the morning you are all three speechless owing to having caught severe colds in the night you can also you also feel very quarrelsome and you swear at each other in hoarse whispers during the whole of breakfast time We therefore decided that we would sleep out on fine nights, and hotel it and inn it and pub it like respectable folks when it was wet, or when we felt inclined for a change. Montmorency held this compromise with much approval. He does not revel in romantic solitude. Give him something noisy, and if a trifle low, so much the jollier. To look at Montmorency you would imagine that he was an angel sent upon the earth, for some reason withheld from mankind, in the shape of a small fox terrier. There is a sort of, oh, what a wicked world this is, and how I wish I could do something to make it better and nobler, expression about Montmorency, that has been known to bring tears into the eyes of pious old ladies and gentlemen. When first he came to live at my expense, I never thought I should be able to get him to stop long. I used to sit down and look at him, as he sat on the rug and looked at me, and think, oh, that dog will never live, he will be snatched up to the bright skies in a chariot, that is what will happen to him." But when I had paid for about a dozen chickens that he had killed, and had dragged him, growling and kicking by the scruff of his neck, out of a hundred and fourteen street fights, and had had a dead cat brought round for my inspection by an irate female, who called me a murderer, and had been summoned by the man next door but one for having a ferocious dog at large, that had kept him pinned up in his own tool shed, afraid to venture his nose outside the door for over two hours on a cold night, and had learned that the gardener, unknown to myself, had won thirty shillings by backing him to kill rats against time, then I began to think that maybe they'd let him remain on earth for a bit longer after all. To hang about a stable and collect a gang of the most disreputable dogs to be found in the town, and lead them out to march round the slums to fight other disreputable dogs, is Montmorency's idea of life. And so, as I before observed, He gave to the suggestion of inns and pubs and hotels his most emphatic approbation. Having thus settled the sleeping arrangements to the satisfaction of all four of us, the only thing left to discuss was what we should take with us, and this we had begun to argue, when Harris said he'd had enough oratory for one night and proposed that we should go out and have a smile, saying that he had found a place round by the square where you really could get a drop of Irish worth drinking. George said he felt thirsty. I never knew George when he didn't, and, as I had a presentiment that a little whiskey warm with a slice of lemon would do my complaint good, the debate was, by common assent, adjourned to the following night, and the assembly put on its hats and went out. Chapter Three Arrangements Settled, Harris's Method of Doing Work, How the Elderly Family Man Puts Up a Picture, George Makes a Sensible Remark, Delights of Early Morning Bathing, provisions for getting upset so on the following evening we again assembled to discuss and arrange our plans harris said now the first thing to settle is what to take with us now you get a bit of paper and write down jay and you get the grocery catalog george and somebody give me a bit of pencil and then i'll make out a list that's harris all over so ready to take the burden of everything himself and put it on the backs of other people he always reminds me of my poor uncle podger "'You never saw such a commotion up and down the house in all your life "'as when my Uncle Podger undertook to do a job. "'A picture would have come home from the frame-makers "'and be standing in the dining-room, waiting to be put up. And Aunt Podger would ask what was to be done with it. And Uncle Podger would say, "'Oh, you leave that to me. "'Don't you, any of you, worry yourselves about that. "'I'll do all that.' "'Then he would take off his coat and begin. "'He would send the girl out for a 6, pin, six earth of nails,' and then one of the boys after her to tell her what size to get, and from that he would gradually work down and start the whole house. "'Now you go and get me my hammer, Will,' he would shout, "'and bring me the rule, Tom, and I shall want the step-ladder, "'And I would better have a kitchen chair, too. "'And, Jim, you run round to Mr. Goggles and tell him. Pa's kind regards and hopes his leg's better, "'and will he, le- will he lend him a spirit level? "'And don't you go, Maria, because I shall want somebody to hold, hold me the light. "'And when the girl comes back, she must go out again for a bit of picture cord. "'And Tom, where's Tom? Tom, you come here.' "'I shall want you to hand me the picture.' "'And then he would lift up the picture and drop it, "'and it would come out of the frame, "'and he would try to save the glass and cut himself, "'and then he would spring round the room "'looking for his handkerchief. "'He could not find his handkerchief "'because it was in the pocket of the coat he had taken off, "'and he did not know where he had put the coat, "'and all the house had to leave off looking for his tools "'and start looking for his coat, "'while he would dance round and hinder them. "'Doesn't anybody in the whole house know where my coat is? "'I never came across that a set in all my life.' "'Upon my word, I didn't. Six of you, "'and you can't find a coat that I put down not five minutes ago. "'Well, of all the—' "'Then he'd get up and find that he had been sitting on it, "'and would call out, "'Oh, you can give up. I've found it myself now. "'Might just as well ask the cat to find anything "'as expect you people to find it.' "'And when half an hour had been spent in tying up his finger, "'and a new glass had been got, "'and the tools and the ladder and the chair "'and the candle had been brought, "'he would have another go, "'the whole family, including the girl and the charwoman, Standing round in a semicircle, ready to help two people would have to hold the chair, and a third would help him up on it and hold him there, and a fourth would hand him a nail, and a fifth would pass him up the hammer, and he would take hold of the nail and drop it there he would say in an injured tone, "Now the nail's gone, and we would have to go down on our knees and grovel for it while he would stand on the chair and grunt and want to know if he was to be kept there all the evening. The nail would be found at last, but by that time he would have lost the hammer where's the hammer what did i do with the hammer great heavens seven of you gaping round there and you don't know what i did with a hammer we would find the hammer for him and then he would have lost sight of the mark he had made on the wall where where the nail was to go in and even each of us had to get up on the chair beside him and see if we could find it and we would each discover it in a different place and he would call us fools one after another and tell us to get down And he would take the rule and remeasure and find that he wanted half thirty-one and three-eighths inches from the corner and would try to do it in his head and go mad. And we would all try to do it in our heads and arrive at different results and sneer at one another. And in the general row, the original number would be forgotten and Uncle Podger would have to measure it again. He would use a bit of string this time, and at the critical moment when the old fool was leaning over the chair at an angle of forty-five and trying to reach a point three inches beyond what was possible for him to reach, The string would slip, and down he would slide onto the piano, a really fine musical effect being produced by the suddenness with which his head and body struck all the notes at the same time. And Aunt Maria would say that she would not allow the children to stand round and hear such language. At last, Uncle Podger would get the spot fixed again and put the point of the nail on it with his left hand and take the hammer in his right hand, and with the first blow he would smash his thumb and drop the hammer with a yell on somebody's toes. Aunt Maria would mildly observe that, next time Uncle Podger was going to hammer a nail into the wall, she'd hoped he'd let her know in time, so that she could make arrangements to go and spend a week with her mother while it was being done. Oh, you women make such a fuss over everything, Uncle Podger would reply, picking himself up. Why, I like doing a little job of this sort. And then he would have another try, and at the second blow, the nail would go clean through the plaster and half the hammer after it and Uncle Podger be precipitated against the wall with force nearly sufficient to flatten his nose. Then we had to find the rule and the string again, and a new hole was made, and about midnight the picture would be up, very crooked and insecure, the wall for yards around looking as if it had been smoothed down with a rake, and everybody deadbeat and wretched except un- Uncle Podger. "'There you are,' he would say, stepping heavily off the chair onto the el- charwoman's corns, and surveying the mess he had made with evident pride. Why, some people would have had a man in to do a little thing like that. Harris will be just that sort of man when he grows up, I know, and I told him so. I said I could not permit him to take so much labor upon himself. I said, no, you get the paper and the pencil and the catalog, and George write down, and I'll do the work. The first list we made out had to be discarded. It was clear that the upper reaches of the Thames would not allow of the navigation of a boat sufficiently large to take the things we had set down as indispensable. "'so we tore the list up and looked at one another. "'George said, "'You know, we we are on the wrong track altogether. "'We must not think of the things we could do with, "'but only the things that we can't do without. "'George comes out really sensible at times. "'You'd be surprised.' "'I call that downright wisdom, "'not merely as regards the present case, "'but with reference to our trip up the river of life generally.' How many people on that voyage load up the boat till it is in danger of swamping with a store of foolish things which they think essential to the pleasure and comfort of the trip, but which are really only useless lumber? How they pile the poor little craft mast high with fine clothes and big houses, with useless servants and a host of swell-fit friends that do not care twopence for them, and that they do not care 3 hapence for, with expensive entertainments that nobody enjoys, with formalities and fashions with pretense and ostentation and oh heaviest maddest lumber of all the dread of what my neighbor will think the dread of what will my neighbor think with luxuries that only cloy with pleasures that bore with empty show that like the criminal's iron crown of yore makes to bleed and swoon the aching head that wears it it is lumber man all lumber throw it overboard it makes the boat so heavy to pull, you nearly faint at the oars. It makes it so cumbersome and dangerous to manage, you never know a moment's freedom from anxiety and care. Never gain a moment's rest for dreamy laziness. No time to watch the windy shadows skimming lightly o'er the shallows, or the glittering sunbeams flitting in and out among, among the ripples, or the green trees by the margin looking down at their own image, or the woods all green and golden, or the lilies white and yellow, or the somber waving rushes, or the sedges, or the orchis or the blue forget-me-nots. Throw the lumber over, man. Let your boat of life be light, packed with only what you need, a homely home and simple pleasures, one or two friends worth the name, someone to love and someone to love you, a cat, a dog, a- and a pipe or two, enough to eat and enough to wear, and a little more than enough to drink, for thirst is a dangerous thing. You will find the boat easier to pull than and it will not be so liable to upset. It will not matter so much if it does upset. Good, plain merchandise will stand water. You will have time to think as well as to work, time to drink in life's sunshine, time to listen to the Aeolian music that the wind of God draws from the human heartstrings around us, time to—I beg your pardon, really, I quite forgot. Well, we left the list to George, and he began it. "'We won't take a tent,' suggested George. "'We will have a boat with cover. With a cover. "'It is ever so much simpler and more comfortable. "'It seemed a good thought, and we adopted it. "'I do not know whether you have ever seen the thing I mean. "'You fix iron hoops up over the boat "'and stretch a huge canvas over them "'and fasten it down all round from stem to stern, "'and it converts the boat into a sort of little house, "'and it is beautifully cosy, though a trifle stuffy. "'But there, everything has its drawbacks.' as the man said when his mother-in-law died and they came down upon him for the funeral expenses. George said that in that case we must take a rug each, a lamp, some soap, a brush and comb between us, a toothbrush each, a basin, some tooth powder, some shaving tackle, sounds like a French exercise doesn't it, and a couple of big towels for bedding. I noticed that people always make gigantic arrangements for bathing when they are going anywhere near the water, but that they don't bathe much when they are there. It is the same when you go to the seaside. I always determine, when thinking over the matter in London, that I'll get up early every morning and go and have a dip before breakfast, and I religiously pack up. And I religiously pack up a pair of drawers and a bath towel. I always get red bathing drawers. I rather fancy myself in red drawers. They suit my complexion so. But when I get to the sea, I don't feel somehow that I want that early morning bathe nearly so much as I did when I was in town. On the contrary, I feel more that I want to stop in bed till the last moment, and then come down and have my breakfast. Once or twice virtue has triumphed, and I have got out at six and have dressed myself, and have taken my drawers and towel and stumbled dismally off, but I haven't enjoyed it. They seem to keep a specially cutting east wind waiting for me when I go to bathe in the early morning, and they pick out all the three-cornered stones and put them on the top, and they sharpen up the rocks and cover the points over with a bit of sand so that I can't see them, and they take the sea and put it two miles out so that i have to huddle myself up in my arms and hop shivering through six inches of water and when i do get to the sea it is rough and quite insulting one huge wave catches me up and chucks me in a sitting posture as hard as it ever can down onto a rock which has been put there for me and before i've said "Oh, oh and found out what has gone the wave comes back and carries me out to mid-ocean i begin to strike out frantically for the shore and wonder if i shall ever see home and friends again and wish I'd been kinder to my little sister when a boy, when I was a boy, I mean. Just when I have given up all hope, a wave retires and leaves me sprawling like a starfish on the sand, and I get up and look back and find that I've been swimming for my life in two feet of water. I hop back and dress and crawl home, where where I have to pretend I liked it. In the present instance, we all talked as if we were going to have a long swim every morning, George said it was so pleasant to wake up in the boat in the fresh morning and plunge into the limpid river. Harris said there was nothing like a swim before breakfast to give you an appetite. He said it always gave him an appetite. George said that if it it was going to make Harris eat more than Harris ordinarily ate, then he should protest against Harris having a bath at all. He said there would be quite enough hard work in towing sufficient food for Harris up against stream, as it was. I urged upon George, however, how much pleasanter it would be to have Harris clean and fresh about the boat. Even if we did have to take a few hundred, even if we did have to take a few more hundredweight of provisions, and he got to see it in my light and withdrew his opposition to Harris's bath, agreed finally that we should take three bath towels so as not to keep each other waiting. For clothes, George said two suits of flannel would be sufficient, as we could wash them ourselves in the river when they got dirty. We asked him if he had ever tried washing flannels in the river, and he replied. "'No, not exactly himself-like, "'but he knew some fellows who had, and it was easy enough. "'And Harris and I were weak enough to fancy "'he knew what he was talking about, "'and that three respectable young men, "'without position or influence, "'and with no experience in washing, "'could really clean their own shirts and trousers in the River Thames with a bit of soap. "'We were to learn in the days to come, "'when it was too late, "'that George was a miserable impostor, "'who could evidently have known nothing whatever about the matter. "'If you had seen these clothes after,' but, as the shilling shockers say, we anticipate. George impressed upon us to take a change of underthings and plenty of socks, in case we got upset and wanted a change, also plenty of handkerchiefs, as they would do to wipe things, and a pair of leather boots as well as our boating shoes, if we should want them if we got upset.